When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 Million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm Miles Traer. Today, we're featuring a conversation with Admiral Lee Gunn who offers perspective on an issue we've been wanting to cover for a long time, how climate change may impact national security and the work of our armed forces. In this interview, Admiral Gunn speaks to our producer, Benji Jones, about climate change as a threat multiplier for national security, the perception that the Defense Department tends to be conservative and skeptical of climate science, and the greening of our military. Here's his conversation with Benji. I'm Lee Gunn. I spent most of my adult life in the Navy. Um, I enlisted when I was 19. I was commissioned when I was 23. I went to Vietnam right away. That was my first fight. And uh, I retired at 58. And then I was uh, for 14 years the president of the Institute for Public Research at CNA, which was doing public policy work for federal, state, and local governments in energy, water, climate, and security, as well as some other practices that we put together. So this podcast, Generation Anthropocene, we frequently talk about climate change issues, but we've never had such a high-ranking military official with us. So I'd like to start by asking you, when did the effects of climate change become apparent to you, especially within the context of national security? Sure, that's a good question. Um, and I've thought a lot about that because for the 39 years I was in the Navy, I don't recall being particularly attuned to the things that we were doing, the, the fuel we were using, the waste we were producing, and the like. The things that we were doing that would affect the climate, we dealt almost exclusively as a professional matter with the consequences of climate change, mm. the need for humanitarian assistance and disaster uh, response, the uh, the fact that people were increasingly moving, the migrant movements, and the need to both keep them safe uh, and to uh, provide stability in the areas from which they were coming so that there would be fewer of them to move. But then at the end of my career, uh, when I went to work for CNA, uh, it became clear that things were changing and that the military and the other elements of society were making these changes come about. We were contributing to climate change. So we were, in fact, contributing on the front end of difficult conditions that the military would eventually have to contend with on the back end. You mentioned that 
prior to your years at the CNA, you were kind of responding to some of the effects of climate change, such as migration or potentially flooding from storms. And I'm wondering, during your years in the Navy, was there this link to climate change in your mind? Did you have that attribution at the time, or was that something that you just thought about afterwards while you were kind of thinking more in depth about these issues at the CNA? I think as I became more senior and as my responsibilities became more broad, um, it uh, was dawning on me that the world was changing in important ways and the situations that we were dealing with in the case of a particular migration or a particular aftermath of a storm was not isolated, that these were going to be more common Mm. in the future. And so trying to understand that change became a real motivation for us. And that's fundamentally why I put in place this energy, water, climate, national security practice. Um, That's helpful. And actually, building on that, can you describe to me from just a purely practical standpoint what risk you see climate change poses to national security and the security of Americans? As you can imagine, that's a complicated matter. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's because... Everything, to one degree or another, just about, that humans do affects the change in climate. So uh, the national security aspect of this, one of the former uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Mike Mullen, made a very strong connection among several elements of national power. He said that economic power, diplomatic power, will of the people, and military power constitute four, maybe perhaps perhaps not the only elements of national power, but four very important pillars of national Mm. power. The economic welfare of America is closely tied to the national security welfare of America. And one of the things that our military does is provide assurance and stability around the world for vital things like trade routes. Since uh, 90-plus percent of all merchandise in the world moves by sea, there needs to be uh, assurance for people who uh, use those trade routes that they will remain open, they'll be safe from pirates, um, they'll be safe from intrusion and restriction by other governments. That is one of the very many kinds of services that the American military provides to the international community around the world. So the economic power is tied to our military power in that sense. Uh, The national security concerns include imagining the kinds of engagements, the kinds of demands that will be placed on our military in the future if climate change is unabated, if we don't mitigate it, if we don't find ways of both doing that and adapting to a change in climate, then the military is going to be called on to provide more of the services that it has always provided around the world, and it's going to be asked to do it in tougher conditions. Um, To a sailor, sea level rise is really (laughs) an important consequence for uh, climate change. The uh, Union of Concerned Scientists uh, put out a report identifying 18 uh, military installations, most of them Navy, as you might expect, on the East Coast and the Gulf Coast of the United States, which are seriously at risk from the rising seas. And the, the cost of adapting to this 
is immense. Hmm. I think it's far cheaper and obviously a whole lot smarter to mitigate these things first rather than have to adapt to them as extremely as we might in the future in the fu- in the future. Right. Clearly from our conversation so far and talking to you earlier, you believe in climate change. Yes, of course. <laughs> and I think that there is a perception to some extent that the national armed forces are conservative leaning at least. Sure. Um and obviously that's a generalization and I would assume that people in the military would try to be a political but I'm wondering as in unpolitical. <laughs> yeah, yes, as an right. unpolitical, but climate change is such a polarizing topic, it's such a politicized topic. So I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the perception of climate change science within the military. Have you gone to a place where you can have these conversations with your military peers? Do you have these conversations regularly? We do. Um, as, as a matter of fact, I'm the vice chairman of the military advisory board at the CNA. One of the things that uh, happened at CNA in the mid-2000s, uh, 2006 and seven, was that we formed a group of retired, now able to speak our minds, three and four-star uh, admirals and generals. Uh, we convened around the question um, and a year's study, uh, is there a connection between climate change and national security? Back to your original right. uh, point. And frankly, there were some skeptics. You know, military people are used to coming to an issue they're not familiar with, with a real sense of inquiry. And so we didn't postulate that there was a, a connection between climate change and national security. Uh, we asked the question legitimately, is there one, and if so, how can we demonstrate that? Hmm. And what does it mean to the future of the country? And what does it mean immediately to the Defense Department? That is, are there changes that the Defense Department needs to make in the way it behaves and the way it guides its people that will both contribute to our the reduction of our c- contribution to climate change and also improve our ability to respond to what we're seeing around us? Uh, and by the way, there are now 35 of us who have served on this board from 2006 to now. And I've been asked, particularly by conservative audiences when I've talked to them about this, um, if if this is a bunch of Democrats who've gotten together to consider these things. And I've said quite truly, I've served with these people on and off now for 10 years. And I know the political affiliation of none of them. Um, we are in this because we're concerned about the young men and women who will serve in America's military in the future. We're concerned about the military's role in enabling the country to both mitigate and accommodate the changes that the planet is undergoing. And we're committed to helping people understand, not just people in the military, but people uh, across the nation understand what these forces are that are at work and that they're very real and that humans are playing the dominant role and that if we change our behavior, we don't have to have the destiny that will be so so bad for us and for younger generations in the future. You mentioned when we were talking earlier about refitting vessels with biofuels or making hybrid ships, and the impetus for that really isn't we're trying to fight against climate change. It's that it makes the ships more self-sufficient, right? I mean, exactly. When I was in uh, in command of a ship. 
we would have to uh, break off of whatever our operations were and go and refuel underway, but refuel from a tanker every three to five days. And so the decision was made to begin to produce ships. Now, decisions about production of things that are 50,000-ton ships and are going to last for 50 years, those are momentous kinds of decisions. I would imagine. Yeah. So it was decided that we wouldn't build the engineering plant, the propulsion plant of this ship, in the same way we built them all along. We would uh, beef up the electrical generation capability because the gas turbine generators that are used to turn the screws and propel the ship when it's at high speed are not efficient at low speed. But if you put electric motors on those same shafts and power them with electricity off of the generators, then that is very efficient at low speeds. The first ship came back from deployment that was built this way, saved 5 million gallons of oil. Um, over what it would have used had it been on, a, on the same deployment with the conventional power plant. The wow. Navy's now That's refitting huge. all the destroyers, all the guided, guided missile destroyers with that. Uh, every You mentioned biofuels. Every ship, aircraft, or uh, tactical vehicle in the military has been certified to operate on biofuels. Um, and you're exactly right. It's not because this is a, we're trying to create a cottage industry. It's because in the future, we want to be flexible. Yeah, actually, just to linger on this a little bit, I there was a clip on, on The Daily Show yesterday that I saw, <laughs> and they talked about greening the military. And I think I have this perception that the military is like this macho arm of the government. And you talk about the ships are called destroyers. <laughs> and to, I, I guess to me... There, it is sometimes surprising to hear military military leaders talking about greening the military because I think a lot of people associate greening with kind of like um, tree hugging, the tree hugging yes, hippies. Exactly. Um, so I think that messaging around this is really important, like making that point that this is actually purely from a practical standpoint to complete our mission effectively. This is a solution for us. That's such an important point you make. Um, we have to have this conversation with the Congress all the time, as you can ex- as you can suppose there are. Mm. Some members of Congress, when it's budget time, um, who look at the proposals for the military budget and make it their business personally to strike out anything that they can associate with confronting climate change. Or, if you look at it from the military point of view, making us more flexible, improving our combat power, uh, moving us into the new world. And so... They will say, no, no, that's climate change, and this, you know, we don't, we're not going to hobby shop this. We've actually been told, you have to do what the military is for. You have to kill people and break things. You know, nobody dislikes war, somebody more than someone who's been to war. Right, I would imagine. Uh, And so what we want to do is contribute to taking care of the planet as it is, not contribute to making it worse in the future, at the same time, in order to, comp- to take care of our mission as it presently is, we need to have flexibility. We need to try new things. Just jumping into something that we talked about a little bit earlier in the conversation, I think it is going too far to, to say that climate change causes war directly. But I have read reports from the CNA that talk about climate change as a threat multiplier. And I was wondering if you could explain what is a threat multiplier? Threat multiplier is a term that's now become part of the general conversation about climate change and security. 
That was first coined in the 2007 report of the Military Advisory Board at CNA. And we talked about it as a catalyst for conflict. There are presently about 65 million people in the world who are displaced beyond the borders of their original country. Many of those are climate-driven refugees already. Uh, It's the drought. It's the prolonged drought. It's the moving of the margins between the kind of agriculture that is planting and the kind of agriculture that's hurting. And when that happens after such a long period of the climate being relatively stable and predictable, when those movements occur, they don't occur without a fight. Um, And so that increasingly is happening around the world. I like to tell folks that um, we've enjoyed, I'm not sure that's the same word everywhere, but we've enjoyed about 12,000 years of relative climate stability. During that period, when we grew from a handful of millions of people on the planet to 2.4 billion when I was born, to 7.2 billion now, uh, we built a lot of stuff we care about. We built lives and cultures and livelihoods in places that we want to protect. Well, that's true everywhere. Mm-hmm. And increasingly, the change in climate, the moving margins for agriculture, all of those things are going to cause instability of the kind that Americans have traditionally expected their military very often to be ready to deal with. Um, so that's the catalyst for conflict that we're talking about. That's the threat multiplier. The threat to uh, human life and welfare and prosperity is going to be increased gradually uh, as the climate changes around us. And we need to, need to both adapt to it and we need to do our best to confront it. And it's the confronting piece where we want to put most of our effort. Yeah, I mean, clearly you've spent a lot of time on the front lines and one of the reasons that I love talking to you about this is because when I think of the melting Arctic, drowning polar bears come to mind. Sure. But it's really, really interesting just to hear all of the other consequences that might not be on the surface of people's minds. I, well, I, I think that's exactly right. It's not that the polar bears aren't important. And, you know, I am very concerned about the uh, elimination of species, about extinction. Um, and they are really endangered. But from a national security perspective, the kinds of things we've been talking about are important. Um when you were talking about the U.S. involvement, it got me thinking about how the U.S. forces might be responding to more natural disasters in response to climate change. And I'm wondering, is the U.S. facing more response missions to try to mitigate disaster or adapt to disaster? And, and how does the military adapt to those kinds of uh, demands? Sure. Number one, the answer is yes, uh, there are more. Uh, if you keep track of the same kinds of events year to year, you, you see the same trend you see in climate change. You see the same trend you see in population. I mean, because obviously these disasters are where people are being affected. Right, right. So that's not a surprise. Well, one of, one of the things that the Military Advisory Board recommended to the Defense Department in the first report was that uh, humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, which is the category of mission that this, you're talking about, be officially recognized as a formal mission for the Defense Department where it hadn't been before. Hmm. 
for all the years of the Cold War, we were focused on killing people and breaking things if necessary. Um, the humanitarian assistance piece was done, was assumed. If you can do the hard stuff, this is not quite as hard, so you'll be able to do this. But as these things have become uh, more numerous, as the demand has increased, it has been become apparent that you need to equip it, equip for it specifically, train for it specifically, man for it specifically, um, in anticipation of these requirements that you're going to get. And so, the Defense Department did that. And now the Quadrennial Defense Review for the last uh, two of these four-year reports has specifically called for humanitarian assistance and disaster relief to be a mission. It now is a formal mission in the national military strategy, and, and it is being man-trained and equipped to do. And what do those missions look like? L let me just talk about the most capable of the operational units, uh, an amphibious task force. Uh, it will have one or two big deck amphibious ships, but actually they're small aircraft carriers. Uh, they're 50,000 tons or so. They operate helicopters and vertical takeoff and landing jets. And they also operate hovercraft. They have an ex enormous medical capacity. If you put the Marines ashore and they get hurt, you gotta have a place to, to help right. them. And so, one of these big deck amphibious ships will have three or four operating theaters. We'll have several hundred beds that can be used uh, for general hospital use. They have a full medical staff, surgeons, nursing staff, the whole shebang. They carry uh, rations to support Marines ashore. And they carry reverse osmosis water purification units so that once the, mar the Marines establish a beachhead, ashore, they can uh, make their own water. They carry helicopters to get Marines ashore and to defend them when they're there, and the jump jets and all. So we can mount an extensive effort at humanitarian assistance from operational forces. The Navy still has two hospital ships as well. And so they they're, they're just ships that are basically hospitals? They are just ships wow. that are basically 900 beds. Whoa. Many surgical units. Their only purpose is to get um, injured or ill people aboard and tend to them and help them rehabilitate. And um, they go periodically. Uh, they get underway with a full medical staff. They don't have one all the time when they're sitting in port, but they'll take a full medical staff from the Naval Hospital at, at Bethesda, Maryland, or from the Naval Hospitals on the West Coast, and they will go and do humanitarian assistance uh, they'll provide audiology tests and vision tests and treat diseases that are endemic in the area, all of those kinds of things, the goodwill stuff. Right, right. And do you think that, so the U.S. Army or the U.S. the U.S. security forces are beefing up their response to humanitarian crises, and on the one hand, it could be in response to just more natural disasters in general, and on the other hand, it sure. could be in response to just shifting... Um, desires by the by the security forces to be more giving. Is it a combination of those two things? I think it is. Uh, in, in any case, it's mission readiness. We can observe. It's a fact that the demands for this kind of um, quasi-military operation are increasing. Hmm. So we ought to be ready for it. Right. Um, I've said many times that we train and prepare for war. What we really want to do is help people. 
sailors would much rather be involved in a humanitarian assistance operation than in having to go fight. Hmm. Uh, it's gratifying right. personally. It's gratifying professionally. And so the the impetus is there, as you indicate. We want to do good things. It's much better to do good things than bad things. And and uh, But you got to be ready to do all of it. And again, this is like like the military transition into less climate-damaging operations that we talked about, new fuels, greater efficiency, use of solar and the like. It's still focused on the mission. Right. It's to make us better at what we do and make us more useful to the American people when they ask us to do things. Well, Ligon, this has been absolutely fabulous. Thank you so much for taking the time. I've really learned a lot. You bet. All right. Thank you so much. That was our producer, Benji Jones, with Admiral Lee Gunn. Thank you to Admiral Gunn for taking the time to come on the show. We really appreciate it. Generation Anthropocene is produced by Mike Osborne, Leslie Chang, Jackson Roach, and me, Miles Traer. Thanks also to Tom Hayden and Isha Salian. Our project is supported by Worldview Stanford and Stanford Earth. Our website is genanthro.com. That's G-E-N-A-N-T-H-R-O.com. And we're also on Facebook and on Twitter at Gen Anthropocene. Thanks as always for listening. And you want that outro? Yes, please. Do, 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 do. All right.